0: Hebrews chapter 13 and the verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Tonight we are doing a word study in Hebrews and it's the word everlasting or eternal. We read here of the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now in this epistle, there are some key words that are very appropriate, very relevant to the overall theme of the epistle to the Hebrews. And these key words contrast the old with the new. They contrast the Old Testament, the shadows and the types, the typology of the old with the substance and the reality of the new in Christ. The types with the anti-type, the ineffectual with the effectual, the earthly tabernacle with the heavenly tabernacle. There are key words that are capturing these contrasts. Between the old and the new. And one key word is better. It's better now because of Christ. Christ is better than the angels. Christ gives us a better hope than they had in the old. A better testament we have now. A better covenant. Better promises. Better sacrifice. Better country. Better substance. Better resurrection. So you see how often... Paul is using that key word better throughout. Another key word is is once or one. Christ was once offered the birth of the sins of many. Once for all. Not like the old. They're many. They're daily. They're constant. Once for all. One sacrifice now for sins. Not many, but now in Christ, the one, the one effectual, one offering, the apostle calls it. This is in contrast to the unending sacrifices of the old. So one and once is a very important word in Hebrews. Another key word is no more. And remember their sins and iniquities, no more. On the annual day of atonement, annually they were remembered and had to be atoned for. Come up again the following year. But in the new, through Christ, no more remembered. That's it. Where remission of sins for these is, no more offering for sin. No more offering. The last one in Christ was enough, was sufficient. So there's no more. No more, no more conscious of sins. Because of this one offering, no more conscious of sins. And there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. So, that's another key expression, giving you the same contrast between what we have now in Christ and all of that on the old, all that temporal and effectual, typological and shadow and all of this. But you see how these are contrasting Christ as the final, the complete, the fullness in contrast to all the multiplicity and the many and the continual of the shadows. But in our text tonight, there is another key word in the epistle to the Hebrews. Everlasting. Eternal. And that contrasts with the temporary of the old. With the time. With the change of the old. And now we have in Christ something that's eternal. Everlasting. Of eternal duration. Unchangeable. And so the apostle here is speaking of eternal things. And the one that is in this text, this is actually the last time that he uses the word everlasting or eternal, and he's speaking of the covenant. The everlasting covenant. And Paul, of course, is getting that from the Old Testament. This isn't an expression he's made up. Everlasting covenant is an expression that is referred to frequently in the Old Testament scriptures. And this is it being mentioned by Paul. The Old Testament is temporary. Nothing eternal about it. Carnal ordinances, temporary ordinances, time ordinances merely. The apostle calls them in another letter, the weak and beggarly elements in relation to things in this world in regard to the worship of God. Temporary service, just for a while. Tabernacle, for a while. Jerusalem, for a while. Temporary. But in Christ, he has brought in Everlasting things. And this blood is the blood of an everlasting covenant. And that's the basis of all these things that are brought in by him. The, the everlasting covenant. It is an eternal covenant. Now, it's very hard for us to comprehend what eternal means. And it's very hard to explain. In fact, it can't be explained because you can't really understand it. It's something that is eternal, we, we cannot really focus on. We can't really... We look upon it as as eternal time, as time that is infinite. But it's not. Time is time, and time begins and time ends. Time is a creature, and eternal is something beyond that. So it's not something we can comprehend. And I don't think we should think in terms of time as eternal, as some unending time. But that's how we think about it, because we're creatures of time, and that's the way our minds are conditioned in this present world of time. But... What Christ has brought in, and what he is going to bring us into, is the eternal. Beyond time. Time will end. And we'll enter into the eternal. The realm in which God dwells. Out of which that covenant came. Out of the persons of the Godhead. This everlasting covenant before the worlds. As I say, it's not easy to explain. But this covenant is, is everlasting. everlasting. And by that it means it's God's. It's before the world. It's originated in God before any creatures. It's part of his eternal decree, his eternal plan. Man cannot make an eternal covenant. I mean, there's no such a thing on earth. Only God can do that. No creature can. Death comes to us and breaks all these things up. Eternal things are the business of the eternal One. And so whenever it says eternal here throughout this epistle, Paul is saying gods and what we have in Christ. What Moses couldn't bring us. What the temple couldn't bring us. What Jerusalem couldn't bring us. What the Old Testament service couldn't bring us. What the Levitical priesthood couldn't bring us. Christ has done that on the basis of his everlasting covenant which he ratified by his own blood. So the sense is, it's divine, unchangeable, indestructible. And here Paul uses the word, that word of God's covenant. Not of time, but of eternity. Now he uses this word everlasting six times in Hebrews. And we're going to look at them now. This is, this is one of them, it's the last occurrence of it. This is the only time it's translated by our translators, everlasting everlasting. The other five times, they translate it with the word eternal, but it, it is the same word. And to those six, we may add another portion where this particular word doesn't occur, but it's implied and similar words occur and the idea of unchangeable and eternal is very evident. And we we'll look at that too if we have time. This key word then, to see what we have in Christ. And that he's brought us now into the reality. And we're not looking some home here on earth. We're not looking some temporal thing on this planet. No. What we have in Christ. We have onto eternity. And all the temporal of the old. Has been fulfilled in him. It's fulfilled in him. He's brought us into the everlasting. Not into the millennium. Not into something earthly and temporal. You know it's going to change again. No in Christ now. All the substance of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Him, and He brought us into that the eternal. This is what the Hebrews teaches. It's a very main theme in it. So let, let's look at the other occurrences in chapter five, verse nine. Though He were a Son, He learned obedience by the things which He suffered, being made perfect. The perfect Savior that we need in His sufferings, He became the Author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So this is the first occurrence of the word eternal in Hebrews. This epistle which is about salvation he calls it earlier on a great salvation. But why is it a great salvation? Because it's eternal. Not a temporary salvation. It's salvation that is life. Eternal life. Life forevermore. Not a national salvation. Israel had a lot of national salvations and then they got in trouble again. And there are temporary salvations, temporary deliverances. They were delivered out of Egypt and then they went to Babylon. They were delivered out of Babylon. They went to Jerusalem and then Jerusalem was overthrown. So it's not that kind of temporary salvation that the people of God experienced in the Old Testament foreshadowing what the true Savior would bring his people to. It's not only foreshadowing and preparing us for the reality and Christ comes he brings in not a temporary deliverance but eternal salvation an everlasting salvation and whenever Paul is is using this expression of course he's thinking of the scripture the whole of Hebrews is about that the Old Testament really just regurgitated and thrown out by a man who's deeply thought upon it this eternal salvation he's thinking of Isaiah because we read in Isaiah that Israel shall be saved at last, with an everlasting salvation. And you'll not be ashamed, nor confounded ever again, world without end. So, saved in the Lord. In the Lord, mind you. This is Christ. Jehovah Christ. Saved in the Lord. With an everlasting salvation. Paul's thinking of that. The author of everlasting salvation is ours, the Lord Jesus. He's the one who's done it. He's the one who's given us the eternal life. He alone has done it for his Israel, for his people. And so we have this now in Christ. And he is the author of it. That salvation which Paul described to Timothy, says the salvation which is in Christ Jesus unto eternal glory. No shame No reproach, no embarrassment, no fears again about being caught up again and having to be delivered again. No, it's it's a salvation in Christ unto eternal glory. I give my sheep eternal life. They'll never perish. They'll not be plucked out of my hand. No. And so this eternal life is through Christ. He's the author of it. And that's why Christians can endure sufferings. Because they know at the end of the day uh, death just brings them into the glory, into the presence of Christ. Disembodied, that is true, and they must wait for the resurrection, for the full day of redemption. But it brings them into rest nonetheless, until that day comes, whenever they shall enter into the fullness with Christ their Saviour. Christians have always been prepared to die, prepared to suffer, even when they don't get a temporary deliverance. They know that they have the eternal deliverance, and the eternal salvation in Christ, and a better resurrection, and they'll be raised from the dead onto the everlasting glory. That's what we have in Christ. It's awesome. It's wonderful. And that's why the gain of the whole world and the loss of this is so unprofitable, so foolish. Our souls are eternally saved in Christ, an everlasting salvation. And then the next occurrence of us in chapter six, just the next chapter. Verse 2, he's talking about the principles, you know, the fundamental foundations, truths of the Word of God, the basics. And he goes to just, you know, lay them out again, some of the basics of the Word of God, the fundamentals. And one of them there in verse 2 at the end, eternal judgment, eternal judgment. Now this is again something that has been brought in by Jesus Christ. The eternal judgment. Because he's the one who is to judge the world. Now, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world by that man, Christ Jesus. And he's given proof thereof. And that he's raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand. So Christ brings in the eternal judgment. Now of course eternal judgment. That implies the Contrast of temporary judgments. There are temporary judgments in the Old. You know, Israel's judged, the nations are judged, they rise up again, they're judged again. There, there is a temporary judgment in the world. People are temporarily judged, nations are temporarily judged, but it's it's not the eternal judgment. And it doesn't deal with everything, and it doesn't deal with everybody, and a lot of people escape the judgment on the earth. But Christ, in bringing in salvation to his people, has also brought in Eternal judgment. There are two sides to this work of Christ on the cross. There's one on the right, the saved. There's one on the other side, the unsaved. He's a great divider and he brings the eternal judgment to both the everlasting salvation of the believing in Jesus Christ and the everlasting perdition of the unbelieving and the rejecting of Jesus Christ. So, so this is the eternal judgment. And there's no judgment now that is eternal. All judgments are temporary. But there's a day coming. Time has ended. Time is over now. About to enter into the great eternity. Whatever that is. know well, only then. But the thing that brings us into the great eternity is the eternal judgment. That sets the paths for the people who go into the eternity of God, into the different areas of it, Everlasting life, eternal perdition, eternal judgment, eternal damnation. And the last great day is the day that Christ does that. He's the one that does that. Moses sat as a judge. Yes, he was. There were judges in Israel, but they're only temporary. Oh, it's Christ that brings in the eternal judgment as the eternal author of salvation. And uh, that will be at the last day. You remember how even the Old Testament teaches that God will bring every work into judgment. That doesn't happen now. We, never, we don't see that now. Every secret thing, whatever it be, whether it be evil or whether it be good, everything, there's a day coming, the appointed day, and as Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That everyone. Everyone, you see. So these, this eternal judgment brought in by our Lord, He is, his person and his work is so profound that it ends in that, the great eternity. And he's the one who appoints men into their eternal places. Christ. Christ. That's why we look to him. That's why we trust him. That's why we're not concerned about going back to Judaism or going back to the temple. Are getting a nice big temple built again. And have all these sacrifices happening again. And have more priests dressed up again. Have another high priest coming in and out and doing his business. That's why we're not going back to that. It's all been fulfilled in Christ. There's nothing more but the eternity. The eternity at the last day that we enter into. And then in in chapter 9 we have several occurrences of the word. Verse 12. And neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once, there's again that word once, into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, eternal redemption is something like eternal salvation. But in mind here is the being bought by the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ that accomplishes it. It's the blood of Christ that buys us from the captivity and brings us into the freedom and liberty of the children of God throughout all eternity. And again, whenever he uses eternal redemption in these expressions, he's contrasting or implying, think about the temporary. There's a temporary redemption in the Old Testament. Christ has brought in the eternal. The temporary redemptions are just the shadows are just the pictures. God has planned history. That way, so that there'll be foretastes and foreshadows for those who were taught of the Holy Spirit until all the people are born into the world, and then the time came for Christ to die, and He'd bring in the eternal redemption. But they're not the real redemptions. And there was a redemption out of Egypt, and there was a redemption out of Babylon, back again to Jerusalem. They're temporary redemptions, not eternal. Moses didn't bring the eternal redemption. Joshua didn't bring the eternal and then the high priest every year he has the day of atonement and we can say every year they have a day of redemption and you know the priest comes out with the blood and that's what's implied here into the holy place once with the blood but annually the high priest went in, in and out, in and out every year the same thing temporary redemption Didn't didn't bring in the atonement but Christ has He's gone in once, that's it, it's done, it's finished, the redemption is complete. He he has brought in the eternal redemption. He's obtained it by his blood. So the eternal plan, the effectual, the eternal redemption in Jesus Christ. And then you'll remember that there was a jubilee in Israel every 50 years on the Day of Atonement. There was a jubilee as well, and in the jubilee... The trumpet was blown. The trumpet, the silver trumpets were blown. And liberty and redemption was proclaimed throughout the whole land. Every 50 years. But even as great as that was, that's still only a temporary redemption. People might have got their land back and the slaves went free and all of this and that. But it still was temporary. The eternal is in Christ. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing more after that. We're just waiting the end. And the resurrection to rise with him. The firstborn has already risen from the dead. And and the people have to follow him. into Into the eternal. And then in verse 14 we have another eternal. This is really the explanation of it all. Chapter 9 verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ. Here we have it again. You see how often the blood is mentioned in this chapter. Who through the eternal spirit. That never happened before. All those offerings. All those animals. All those beasts. Not one of them offered themselves. Yes the priests offered them. And even he didn't know anything about this. Through the eternal spirit. Making these offerings. no Nobody could ever do that. It takes a God man to do that. It takes one of the divine essence. It takes one who is himself. Eternal spirit to do that. As he's made flesh. He offers himself. Now, some people think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. It may be. And the Holy Spirit is working in Christ. And Christ is being sustained. And able to sacrifice himself. But there are others who think it refers to his divine nature. The eternal divine essence. Of which he is partaker thereof. In all its fullness and completeness. He's a the God-man. There never was a God-man offered themselves. There never was the blood of a God-man shed before But this is the blood of the God-man. It makes it of infinite value, infinite worth. Because of this divine sacrifice, it brings us into the eternal, and all the eternal things are completed and fulfilled in him. If he were not God, this could never be. If he was not made flesh and manifested among us. God manifested among us. And doing all of this himself for our salvation. We could never be caught up into the eternal realm at all. We could never be brought into the presence of God at all. To enjoy his eternal fellowship. Unless he come into the world for us. And took our nature. And brought us back as it were. Into the union with the Godhead. We have wonderful things in Christ. The eternal spirit. This is wonderful. The deity and the sacrifice. The high priest and the offering. God and man in one person. As he offers up his humanity. Unto his heavenly father. Wonderful. Mysterious. Deep. Can't fathom it. Let alone explain it and describe it. But we believe it. Through the eternal spirit. And then in verse 15. You see how closely the word eternal. Follows here in these verses. They which are called might receive. The promise of eternal inheritance. Inheritance. And again when you read this word eternal in Hebrews. You think of the opposite. The contrary. The contrast. The eternal inheritance makes us think of the temper. And there's still people talking about the temporary. There's still people talking about Jerusalem. And Israel. And the land of Israel. And what we're going to get and what we're going to have. That's the temporary. We're done with the temporary. We have the eternal. The eternal inheritance in Jesus Christ. We have the new heavens and the new earth. We have the completion in Christ. Not a landscape merely, but new heavens and new earth. Not Canaan, not Israel, not Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem coming down that contains all the glory of God and all the saints that fills the whole cosmos. That's what we have in Christ. Eternal inheritance. Everlasting. Not temporary at all. Not for a little time at all. And all the apostles speak about this. So that you have an inheritance, Peter says. Incorruptible, undefiled, and that doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved in there, but it's not going to stay there. It's going to come down and it's going to fill the, the redeemed new heavens and the new earth. It's colossal. And it's through Christ. Christ has done it all. By his blood, by his sacrifice. And you want to go back to the temple, you you Hebrews, and you're, you're worried about you know not having the priests offering for you and the high priest interceding for you. You have Christ. You have everything in Him. And then to this may be added a seventh one, and it is in chapter seven that we read this. In chapter seven, there comes to the fore. The unchangeable priesthood. The eternal priesthood. Now it doesn't use the word eternal. The exact same word. It uses parallel words, similar words. And it has similar ideas. But he hasn't actually put the word that is in the other six in here. But it's very much implied. An unchangeable priesthood. Chapter 6 verse 20. The forerunner is for us entered. Jesus Made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you see that? Psalm 110. The exposition of Psalm 110. A high priest forever. An eternal high priest. Not temporary. He's eternal high priest. Verse 17 of chapter 7. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 21. Those priests were made without an oath. But this with an oath. By him that said the Lord swore and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever. An eternal and everlasting priest. It's come out of the mouth of God. It's an oath. It's a promise. It's part of the everlasting covenant. My son you are an eternal priest. For your people. And then verse 24. But this man because he, he continueth ever He's in the eternity. He's in the eternal. He's in that glory that is beyond our time, space. He is continuing ever, and there he has an unchangeable priesthood, an eternal priesthood. And then verse twenty-five: Wherefore he's able to save them to the uttermost to come unto God by him, saying, "He ever liveth." He has this eternal life himself. We couldn't have eternal life unless Christ had eternal life in his humanity. He ever lives, he has the eternal life, and he intercedes for his people as a forerunner. He's bringing them to the very same, ever living with him, their great high priest. All because of the priestly work, priestly function, the order of Melchizedek, the oath of God, the everlasting covenant. It's all in Christ. Do you see then, congregation, why we can't go back to the old? How could we ever do that? How could we even think about that? Do you see why we're not interested in the rebuilding of the temple? And sacrifices being reoffered again? And temple ritual? That's all fulfilled in Christ. The whole lot of it, all the Old Testament, is in Him complete. He's a fulfillment. And that's how the New Testament apostles looked at the Old Testament. That's how they interpreted it. And that's how we should interpret it. The way the New Testament apostles interpret it. It's all of Christ. He brings us into the eternal. The eternal. So there's no going back. All that's temporal. And going back to the temporal. Christ has has brought us into. To all the fulfillment. All the reality in him. The glory. The inheritance. The life. Everlasting. And what a wonderful thing the people of God. possess. In their union to Christ. Bless his name. Praise his name. And let's pray. Oh that so many more. May be brought into it. Let's have a bird. Let's pray Lord. Make the, make the number of your people many. Make them many even out of Guilford. And even enter into our homes. And our families Lord. And redeem them. And buy them. And save them. And give them that eternal life. He wants us to pray like that. He does. He wants us to be co-laborer and co-worker with him in this business. So our great Savior, let's ever keep looking to him and trusting in him and believing in him and ask him, Lord, give us more understanding. Help us to understand your word, Lord. Help us to interpret it right and to see your glory and to see beyond the temporal and the changing and what we have in you. Oh man